Okay, so um, let, me, let me review a little bit about what we've talked about, and then uh, we'll get into this. So uh, last time we were together in Rome, and it seems like a long time now, doesn't it? It was way back in December, and, um, but anyway, uh, in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we, we, Paul introduces his letter to us, tells us what his intentions are, tells us what the letter is going to be about, and the letter is going to be about the gospel. Okay? This letter, he says, is the gospel, what I'm about to tell you. And then he moves on in the body of the letter, beginning in verse 18, that takes us all, all the way to chapter 3, verse 21. And what he's doing is he's, he's showing that the Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses, are condemned because they have the law of their conscience for which God will hold them accountable. And they also have the knowledge of God through the creation. So they're aware of his attributes in the creation around them, that he's powerful and, and he's majestic, but then in their conscience they know about his moral demands. Okay? And, uh, and so he holds them accountable for that. They have rejected conscience, they've rejected creation, they've gone after all these other things. So they're condemned Okay. And then he turns to the Jews, and he says the Jews who do have the law of Moses, they have all this special revelation from God. They have, they have creation, they have conscience, but then they have the scriptures. And they too have rebelled. So they're even more accountable to God, and so they're condemned as well. And so what he's demonstrating in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, one, uh, 20 is that Man is in need of righteousness, true righteousness. And um, yeah, everybody's just pretty doggone messed up. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, to chapter 5, verse 21, uh, Paul is talking about uh, how it is that man can acquire or obtain this righteousness that God requires. And then he goes into what we call the doctrine of justification, okay? that man can be acceptable to God because God the Son came into the world, all sin was imputed to him, and then he was punished in the place of humanity, and that through faith, then, God takes the righteousness of Christ and his innocence and he imputes it, he attributes it to the sinner. So then he can look at the sinner as being righteous in his sight, and then he can treat him as such. So Christ took our sin and our punishment we receive Christ's righteousness and his reward, and so life is good. And then from here, uh, Paul moves on uh, chapter six through eight, where he's transitioning into the doctrine of sanctification. Okay? And I'd like you to evaluate what's going on in your mind when you hear the term sanctification. Sanctification. See if it has anything to do with what Paul is talking about. Okay. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, uh, you, when you say sanctification, what do you mean? And I said, well, in the scriptures, sanctification, in the context of what I'm talking about, means this. And, and, and I was giving her, like, 2 Corinthians 3.18 and other passages. She goes, well, to me it means that's not okay. You understand that? That's not okay. To me it means, well, we've left the objective word of God to what we feel, to what, is, what we believe to be true subjectively. And we don't want to do that because subjective things can get us off course super, super fast. Now, the word uh, sanctification, uh, it, it simply means to be set apart. 
That's simply what the word means, and, and, and literally so. Uh, the word holiness, holy, sanctify and sanctification, it's all the same Greek word, but it's translated differently depending on the grammar and the context that it's used in. But it's the same Greek word, uh, different English words to translate it. Uh, but what it means to be uh, set apart or to be being set apart, those are different things, okay? Uh, and the context of scripture is always what has to define that for us. There's what is sac- uh, set apart or what is sanctified or what is holy, and then there's what is being sanctified. They're very, very different, okay? And uh, so what I want to do is I want to look at the doctrine of san- sanctification but I also want to, as we do that, contrast it with the doctrine of justification because people trip up on the two and oftentimes they confuse the two and it kind of is Paul's fault because sometimes Paul referred to justification with the word sanctification. But it can be used that way depending on the grammar and the context. Okay, so I'll point some of that out. So, um, Yeah, so that can be confusing, but hopefully we'll clarify uh, and clear up the mess a little bit tonight, Um, depending on how the author's using it. So simply put, someone can be sanctified, meaning that their sanctification is complete. Now, and if you're from a Wesleyan background, I do not mean what Wesley's meant. He meant moral perfection in this life. He was absolutely wrong. There is no way to demonstrate that from the scriptures. It was something he derived because of a confusion that he had actually in Romans chapter 6. Okay? Uh, so somebody can be sanctified but not morally perfect. Okay? Uh, here, when it's used that way, sanctification is an event that's occurred in the past and it's presently a finished product. And uh, Oftentimes in the scripture, especially Paul, he will say that the believer is sanctified, okay, when he's referring, as I said, to justification. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 is an example of that. Paul says that the Corinthians are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and the tense communicates that the sanctification is complete, it's done, and so forth. Something happened in the past, it's fully accomplished, it's finished. So they're sanctified fully. That is not what we're talking about tonight. It's not what Paul means to say in Romans chapter six through chapter eight. So the other use or concept of sanctification is when the believer is undergoing a process of being made holy or being sanctified. It's a process. It began subsequent to salvation, never happens before it, okay? So it happens subsequent to salvation and it continues in the present and it'll continue until we're no longer in this body, okay? Yeah, it's not a finished product, we might say, but it's a work in progress. An example of this is Hebrews ten fourteen, where Paul says that the believer, if it's Paul, that's my assumption, where Paul's saying that the believer is being made holy, one translation, another says where they're being sanctified. The tense indicates that we're in a process now. It's something that's always going on, okay? And it will until we're in the Lord's presence. Um, Yep, so when we get to Romans 6 through 8, we're not talking about the finished product like justification, but we're talking about this process. Perhaps you remember 
when Paul was wrapping up his discussion about justification, he said, therefore, having been justified. It's done. It's completed. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It can't be repeated. It can't be added to. And um, so as soon as he's done, he's concluded his argument for justification. He moves on to the process of sanctification. So I want to contrast them a little bit more because I want them to be clear in your head because when I talk with people, they get them confused all the time, okay? As we said, in justification, God imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to the believer, and then he declares them righteous because of it. There's no flaw. There's, no, there's nothing lacking, as we talked about, in Jesus' righteousness, and that's the, the righteousness that God imputes to us in its entirety, okay, in its, in its, in its fullness, and what is more, when God justifies the sinner, and this is important, he does not change the moral character or ethical behavior of the sinner. He only changes their status. In justification, the moral character of the person isn't changed. It's not affected at all. Okay? Nothing about their ethical behavior. It's just a status changed. We go from a condemned sinner to a what? An acquitted sinner. Okay? From being unrighteous in his sight to being righteous. We went from being guilty in God's sight to being innocent in his sight, from being rejected by God to being accepted by God. Okay, when Martin Luther was, uh, for the first time, you know, the doctrine of justification was dawning upon him in utter confusion to what the Catholic Church had been teaching, and he, he, he realized from Romans chapter 4 that we are a sinner saint. As strange as that sounds, we're a sinner saint, uh, and, and we will be until we're in his presence, okay? But we become more saintly over time. That's sanctification. But when we're first born again, we're just, we're just in a different position before God, okay? So remember, God justifies uh, not righteous people, but ungodly people. Romans chapter four, verse five, he says, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, okay? So what happens is then, then after the sinner is justified, the spirit of God uh, takes residence in the believer. And then at that time, he, he starts to produce the practical righteousness of Jesus through sanctification, Okay. That is where God begins to transform and change the moral, the moral character of the believer. And only then. Okay. Only then. So in justification, God imputes righteousness to our account. In sanctification, he produces the righteousness of Christ in our lives. Okay. That is very important. Uh, if, you, if you carry on the, the definition of justification from chapter 3 or from chapter four and five into chapter six, you will get utterly confused. It just won't work, okay? So you have to define them and separate them. All right, um, let me get, I don't wanna be too redundant here. Maybe I should say, does anybody have any questions yet? Yes? So when you get saved, you're justified. Yep. Yep. Sanctification is something that begins after justification. 
Yep. You have to be born again by the Spirit of God in order for the Spirit of God to then start changing you. Yep. Yep. So just as we cannot justify ourselves, we cannot sanctify ourselves. It's the work of, it's the work of God. So um, let's, uh, let me give you an overview of chapter 6 through 8, and then we'll go into a little more detail in chapter 6. So in chapter 6, Paul, what he does is he describes the facts, or we might say the mechanics of sanctification, uh, how the facts came to be, and then how sanctification works. The facts. And then in chapter 7, 1 through 6, he, he, he illustrates the doctrine. And then after his illustration, he gives his personal experience. We might say his testimony of trying to live the sanctified life. That's Romans 7, 7 through 25. And then finally in chapter 8, Paul reveals the true source of sanctifying power which is also part of his, his testimony, okay? And he talks about living by the Spirit, by the Spirit's power, and in submission to his will. So let's, let's look at um, chapter six, the facts of sanctification, the mechanics that are related to it. So let me give you, I wanna give you two outlines. I wanna give you a more simple outline, and then we'll look at a little bit more detailed outline, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So real simple, um, I thought I put them up. No, I, I do the more detailed one up top. You could say this. You could say, uh, to know, to reckon, to disallow, and to yield. So you could say four things. To know, to reckon, to disallow, and to yield. Okay, so you need to know the truths of redemption, verses 1 through 10. You need to reckon what you know to be true, verse 11. You need to disallow what is sinful, verse 12, and then yield to what you know is true, verse 13 through 14. And then in verse 15 through 23 to the end, Paul reviews already what he's talked about in the first, few cha- in the first uh, 14 verses. So that's the simple one. Let's do a little more detailed here. So chapter six, knowing the facts, verse one through 10, he says, we've died that's an important fact in, in redemption. We've died. Verse one through three, we're alive. We're alive. Four through five, we're free. Verse six through 10. I figured all the younger people would be taking pictures of the screen, not writing. And then Di puts her phone up to the screen. It's perfect. Not younger than your son. Yeah. And then we want to, so we know the facts. Now we want to reckon the facts. Verse 11, we're dead to sin's power. Verse 11a. And we're alive to to God in Christ. Verse 11b. Reckon. It's the same, comes from the same Greek word to impute or to account, or to consider. Some translations say, consider it true. And, and it's really a word of faith when, when we read the facts of scripture and we go, I believe that. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it, okay? We're reckoning the word of God to be true, what it says about us, 
okay, what it says about Christ. So we're dead to sin's power and we're alive to God in Christ. Then next, so we want to know the facts, we want to reckon them to be true, and then we want to live according to the facts. Verse 12 through 14, we want to refuse uh, sin's unrighteous desire. Verse 12 through 13a, and we can do that because we are free. And then we can obey God's righteous will, verse 13b. Okay, so we want to know the facts. It's the same verse, Mm -hmm. but there are two different imperatives in the Greek, two different commands. And as I mentioned, uh, when we were doing the, the quick overview of the book of Romans, it's interesting how Paul waits until he gets to chapter six, where he gives his first couple commands, and then he shuts them off, and then he goes all the way from chapter six all the way to chapter 12 before he gives another command. And once we get to chapter 12, it's just command after command after command all the way uh, to chapter 16. So it's mostly theological uh, up through chapter 11, and then it becomes practical after that. So you two are always giggling over there. It's really cute. (laughs) So we want to know the facts. We want to reckon them to be true. And then we want to live according to them. So let's... uh, Let's look at some of these details more closely. Let's review the facts. So the first one we said, we've died. Verse one through three. So the moment we trusted in Christ for salvation, Paul says that the old man was plunged into the grave with Christ where he perished. The old man, okay, he perished. The death of our old man brought an end to our relationship with Sin And that relationship was a, a relationship of, of a slave and taskmaster. Uh, and then in the original language, it's even, uh, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign over your body. He uses a regal term. Uh, don't let sin be a king over you, okay? So it's lordship over a, a slave. So the old man was subject to the desires of sin, but now, because of the death, uh, He's dead and sin has no power over him. A dead slave is a free slave. Isn't that true? That's, that's free. He's dead. He, he's no longer subject to his master. He's free. Okay. But then through faith, we now live, okay, even as Christ was raised from the dead. Paul says we're risen with him. Okay. But what's risen is not the old man. He says it's the new man who he says is created in Ephesians 4.24, he says, who's been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, okay? Which is the same concept here in verse four and five. So by faith, our new man was born, he's risen with Christ, and he's born free. See the difference? We, in Adam, as Paul says in Romans 5, we were born into sin. We were born slaves. But then when we died with Christ, and we're reborn. What does Paul say in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? A new creation. Okay. That's right. That's right. So we're, we're born anew, but we're born free in Christ. We're born free. Paul talks about that also in Galatians, but we don't want to get in that tonight. So we're born free, free from sin's power, and uh, we're free 
to live for God and we're a new man, we might say, or a woman under new management. We're under new management. So the old man died, the new man lives, and he's born into freedom. As I said, now comes the first imperative. Paul's given you all these redemptive facts about what Jesus did for us, that through faith we are united to him in his death, in his resurrection, we're free. Now Paul says, you have some responsibility with this. You have to reckon. You have to believe that those things are true, true about you. And he says you have to appropriate the reality, or we might say the implications of freedom. Just like a a slave who has been set free must appropriate the reality for himself and live free. Yeah. Interesting, the the word that is used by Matthew and Mark and then a a related word that's used by Peter is the Greek word lutron and it's translated redeemed. Redeemed. And we, I think we carry an idea of that word from our culture which isn't really what any of them had in mind. A lutron was a, a payment for the purchase of a slave's freedom. If, if somebody came to the slave market, they could buy a slave, that, was, that's, that, that has a term for itself, but then if they were going to purchase a slave's freedom, he would lay down the lutron. And there's no obligation. He's just, there's their freedom, and they can go. Okay. We have been redeemed. What was the currency? The, the blood of Christ. That's right. Peter says, we've not been redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold of that nature. It says, with the precious blood of Christ. That's the lutron. It's the, 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 the payment that frees. Okay? So now that we're free, we have to learn to live free. Imagine someone that was born into slavery, lived as a slave. Do you think it's just, do you think they can just transition into civilian life without any, I mean, how strange would it be? How strange would it be? Did I lose everything? Oh, it's back up, okay. My computer shut off. All right, um, I always get in trouble when I mention a movie. In fact, I mentioned this movie once and somebody cornered me and berated me, but uh, I feel justified in doing it because Paul uh, he cited pagan uh, philosophers, and not to endorse their philosophy or their religion, but to make a point. And uh, I think this illustrates it well. How many guys have seen Aladdin? Now, the old cartoon is much better than the new one, okay? The old cartoon is hilarious, but... So I'm not endorsing Persian mysticism, but there's a scene that illustrates so well uh, what Paul is talking about here. Toward the end of, all, of, of the movie, Aladdin, you remember, he grants the genie his freedom with his last wish. And the moment he grants his freedom, the bracelets on the genie's wrists are removed. They're more like shackles, and they represent his slavery to you know, being a genie. They come off, and as soon as the genie realizes he's free, he turns to Aladdin, and he says to him, he says, tell me to do something. And Aladdin says to do something, and he goes, No! And then he begins to rejoice and laugh and, and you know, he's so excited because he's, he's finally free. Okay? 
but it, it's, it dawns upon him. He, he appropriates the reality, and then just to kind of test it, he says, tell me to do something. And he gets the command, and he says, no. No. And that's what's happened to us. That's what Paul is saying, that we have been set free from our slavery to sin, and, and sin can say, do this. And we can say, no. No, I, I don't have, sin is not my master. We can laugh, we can rejoice. Uh, we don't have to obey his wishes because we're free. And uh, that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that we have, we've been set free, we've been redeemed from the slavery of sin and we no longer have to live according to its demands. You remember Jesus in speaking to uh, the Jews, he said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And then he says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed, okay? Anybody who sins in, in the present tense is a lifestyle. He says, they're a slave, but I can set you free, okay? And Jesus, or Paul is saying here, we've died to sin. That relationship that we had with sin as slave and taskmaster has been done away. It's done away with, okay? We're risen with Christ, he says, we're alive to him so that we can live a new kind of life and in our freedom, we can subject ourselves to the Lord. We're free to do that. Now imagine now the slave who, you know, the shackles have come loose. He doesn't have to do anything out of compulsion, but now he gets to do out of his own freedom. He can do it because he wants to. Because he gets to, not because he has to. And that's the kind of relationship that Christ draws us into, okay, is a love relationship. And we do, in our reverence for him, our thanksgiving for him, we, he is Lord. He's Lord God Almighty, okay? But he's called us into this, this sweet relationship with himself. And that's the difference. How many guys have read um, Lessons from a Sheepdog? Have you read it? Uh, I don't know who it's by. You know how many names I have stuck in my head? I can't remember. But it's, it's a story about a, this crazy sheepdog who is um, tethered on the edge of this Irish village and the, nobody can get near it. It's crazy. And, uh, but it's tied there. They throw food to it. And uh, this guy comes to the community, sees this dog, and, and uh, every time he comes in, he sees it there. And it's, you, know, you can't get close to it. And it's just vicious. And then one day he asks who it is, and I'm kind of giving you the gist, and, and uh, he says, well, can I have it? Can I just take it with me? And he lives out in the country on a ranch or whatever, and he, he, they say, well, sure, get it out of here, and they take, he takes it out into the country, and uh, he tries to befriend it, and he can't. So one day he just cuts the leash, and the dog is free. And before long, the dog is back, and the relationship is building. And uh, it's, just a, it's just an interesting um, allegory of the freedom that we've, been, that we've secured in Christ and what that does to the heart when it's set free. And it's not under law, as Paul even makes the argument in chapter 6 and chapter 7, but it's delivered from all that, and it's free. It's very interesting. Um, all right. 
I don't want to get too deep into chapter 6. Let's move to chapter 7, but I want to skip the illustration that's at the beginning. Uh, I will get into that illustration thoroughly when we get into the book of Galatians after Hebrews, whenever that might be, Jamie. Okay. <laughs> if you're new here, we're, on, we're in Hebrews on Sunday. So chapter 7. Um, it's Paul's experience in chapter 7, uh, verse 7 through 25, and it's, a, it's essential because it explains the struggle that Christians have with holiness. How many of you guys have struggled with being holy, of living the sanctified life? Yeah, I, I, I talk to people all the time. And it's funny because, and Gabe knows this, we've actually been together when people are describing this to us, that you know, they, they have this strong desire to live for God and to do what's right, but then every time they set out to do it, they fall on their face and they're thinking, why am, am I even saved? And, and they ask all these questions and they sound exactly like Paul. And you bring them to Romans 7 or you quote Romans 7 and they think that you're reading their mail. And that's why I think this example is in here because the great apostle Paul, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, was as well off as any of us when it comes to holiness. His, his experience proves that without the, the Spirit, it's impossible to live the way Jesus does. So I appreciate this chapter and... Um, yeah, people wrestle, but people only wrestle if they're saved, because dead men don't wrestle, okay? Yep, only the regenerate man struggles to live according to God's good pleasure. So let's look at this real quick. Chapter 7, uh, Paul's typical experience with this whole thing. Uh, his real uh, struggle picks up in verse 14. He explains the source of his struggle before that, but then uh, he talks about how he's struggling. Uh, his, he talks about his desire to obey God, but he says, I lack the power to perform it. Okay? He addresses the fact that though he is regenerate, he talks about the new man, the inner man. Okay? And he's saying that he's still morally broken. Ugh. If I just wasn't so broken, I could live so well, okay? So he's got this strong desire to obey God's moral standard, but he's unable to perform it. He says instead of doing what the new man desires to do, he ends up doing the very thing that he hates, okay? And so he concludes in verse 18 with, he says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Nothing good will, uh, I'm sorry, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I can't find it. Yeah, let me paraphrase that. He says, For I have discovered through personal experience that there is nothing good in my sin nature. I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the power to do it. I have the desire, but I lack the power, okay? I lack the power. I'm willing but not able, and my experience proves it. How many, you know, it's, I think it's a lot like with some children, where some kids, you can just say, don't do that. And they're like, oh, okay. That's, that's my Asher. Asher's like, okay, Dad. If you say so, I trust you. But then there's Malia. Malia's like, I have to experiment with this first. She learns by experience. And uh, that's, I think a lot of us are like that. 
And uh, we hear that we can't do this holiness thing without Christ. And we're like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna test it. And I think we're, we're, we're proud and uh, we're determined or we're, I don't know, maybe we're A-type personality, certainly not my personality. Uh, but I definitely had to experiment with my own weakness to, to, in order to discover the strength of the Holy Spirit in my experience, okay? It's, it's really, really something. So in this section, it, it's very interesting. Paul's, his own efforts are really expressed in the number of times that the personal pronoun is used in the active voice. Paul's saying, I, was, I did this, I did that, it was me, it was I, all of my self-effort. I think he uses it 12 times in just a few verses. Just all of his, his own efforts. He's the one exerting the energy and he's getting no positive results, okay? So it demonstrates that his own will, his own desires, which were holy, weren't they? I desire to do what is holy. I wanna do what's holy, okay? But they cannot be empowered by his own strength. He cannot secure the holiness or the obedience that he desires. And so at the end in verse 24, look at his conclusion. Oh, wretched man that I am. So he looks at himself. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then he looks out. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So this body that has inordinate appetites, that seems to dominate his holy desires. He says, who will deliver me from this puppy? Okay. Not puppy literally, but this body. So he admits he's a failure when it comes to being a godly person or a Christ-like person. And that's how the, the chapter ends. But it's not the end of the story for Paul or people that struggle. Okay. Thankfully, Paul moves on to chapter 8 where he leaves behind the personal pronouns that are in the active voice, all this wasted self-effort, Okay, he moves on to something else. The personal pronoun changes from the active voice to the passive voice. It's, it's beautiful. It goes from his exerting his own energy, his own strength, to then something being done to him. Remember he said, who will deliver me? He's crying out for help in all of this. Okay. And Paul says in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Everything's changing now. I was trying my best. I was giving it my all. Uh, what do the older people say? My, I was trying to pick myself up by my own bootstraps or whatever. I need to Google that and see where that comes from. If you know where it comes from, tell me after service. I hear it a lot and I understand the expression. I just don't know where it came from. So he's, listen, he says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Remember, chapter seven, uh, Paul complained about being subservient to the law of sin, which he could not break away from, which resulted in moral failure. But here he describes his experience of being delivered from that by the Holy Spirit. Okay? He's saying, I didn't free myself, but... I was liberated by the Spirit. And then in verse three, Paul says that it wasn't him that caused the change in his life. He says it was God. Remember in 724, Paul looked outside of himself to be rescued, okay? But then in 8, 11 through 17, 
he discovered that the Holy Spirit gives life to our bodies. Remember he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, now Christ comes through his Holy Spirit and he gives life to our bodies and he says, and it results in holiness. It results in holiness. The body is, is pretty bad, amen? The things that it has appetite for. But when it's brought under the power of the Spirit, it can be then useful to what is pleasing to God. Okay? Yeah. Paul couldn't free himself from the propensities of his sin nature. But in chapter eight, he celebrates the power of the Spirit who freed him from sin's power and empowered him to live godly. It's very different. Very different. So the facts... Let's review real quick. The facts communicated in chapter six, those are important, but they cannot be lived out by mere willpower, okay, and our own brute strength. The facts can't do that, okay? And Paul demonstrates that in chapter seven. But then in chapter eight, Paul explains that true holiness can be experienced, it can be achieved, he says, by walking in the Holy Spirit's power. This is the same discussion that Paul gives in, in Galatians chapter five regarding walking in the Spirit so that you produce the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to the work of the flesh. Okay, yeah. So it's interesting, what it actually takes Paul three chapters to explain here. He explains it all in one verse in Philippians. It's probably because the Philippians knew what he was talking about because he had been there and taught a lot, whereas the Romans he had not so he says this to the Philippians. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Understand this. Our will, what our desires are, those are transformed uh, when we're regenerate. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us and he begins to give us this desire to live for God. And we think, well, I can do that. And then we discover that we can't. But just as God gives us the will or the desire to live for God's good pleasure, he also has to give us the goods to do it. Okay, he has to empower us to live that way. But I, some people just need experience, as I, I can't deny that, uh, that I did. So holiness, or as we've said, sanctification, is purely a work of the Holy Spirit. Just as you cannot save yourself, you cannot sanctify yourself, okay? Now, but that doesn't mean that we're responsible, responsibility free. So the question is, what would be our responsibility if we cannot sanctify ourselves? We have to reckon, right? We might say that we have to uh, trust and we have to cooperate. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've met people that are, are believers and you're, you're very convinced that they're believers, but they've been believers for 20 years now, and it just doesn't seem like they've been cooperating too much. Their life is still a mess, their family's a mess, and whatever. And it's like, where's the evidence of the progressive work of the Spirit in your life? You understand what I'm saying? So the more you cooperate, the more you fast track. Amen? The Lord never slows people's sanctification down. That is a crazy idea. Okay? We, we do that, but only God can actually do the work itself. And by the way, that should be no surprise 
to us because that is actually the, the promise in the Old Testament of what God would do in the New Testament. Here it is, Ezekiel 36, 27. God says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments. Something that was not happening in the old covenant, something that he's promising to do in the new covenant. I'm gonna do something in you and with you that will change everything. Pretty sweet, huh? Yeah, causing us to walk as we trust and as we cooperate with him. How he plans to work in the new covenant. Yep. So, that's the doctrine of sanctification in the book of Romans. I didn't think I was gonna get through all that, but I am right on time. Do we have any questions? And if you don't wanna ask it in front of everybody, you can ask me afterwards if you like. All right, you can email me too, if you like, if you have a long question. Okay. Like camping? It's intense? <laughs> let's, let's pray. All right, well, Lord, we thank you. And as we said at the beginning, some people, uh, they're, just, they're just so happily in love with you that the desire of their heart uh, is to follow you and they, they just trust you. And they yield to you, and you've done just such an amazing work in their life. And I, Lord, I appreciate the simplicity in that. Uh, it's beautiful. And, um, but this is in your word, and, and you want us to understand the facts, the mechanics. Uh, for our encouragement, I believe that you've revealed Paul's experience uh, to us, uh, especially for those that have struggled in the past. And... And Lord, we do need to be told, we need to be reminded, some of us more than others, that we're not able to do this in our own strength. Just as we can't save or justify ourselves, we cannot sanctify ourselves. That if we are to be conformed into your image, 